jumping Jim Brunzel. Thanks for coming on, my friend. I appreciate this. Well, <laughs> you know, I've done a lot of these. I, I enjoy them. And, you know, it's a way to uh, sort of stay in touch with, uh, you know, my fans have got to be in there. <laughs> you know, the youngest are about 45 and the oldest, who knows? They're, they might be senile, but... Well, George- well- <laughs> I'm a huge fan and I'm 40 and I'll tell you something. I'm, I'm very lucky to have on all different athletes, authors, astronauts. And for some reason I geek out and my friends and fans geek out when old school wrestlers comes on. It's so weird. Like Jake, the snake, come on. I'll name drop Jake, the snake, Kamala, your boy, B Brian Blair. When they come on, they get the most listens and you get the most interaction. Like, Oh, I remember. And you, it takes you back to the place. It's so weird. You know? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I, I consider Jake Roberts uh, one of the, the best all-around wrestlers. He was incredible, his timing, you know, everything he did in the ring, and then that snake gimmick, you know, and I, I remember one time um, we did a coast West Coast trip together, and he used to like to have me drive because he knew I wasn't going to get, you know, goofy and run off the road. <laughs> And I remember we're in L.A. one night. We were sitting out by the pool, and, and it was a beautiful night. We wound up going to bed fairly early. And uh, so I go to the bathroom, and all, <laughs> all of a sudden I'm sitting on the bathroom, and I, I hear this noise, and, he, and his boa came out of the tub, and, and his head was about that far out of the deal, and it scared the daylight out of me. <laughs> so needless to say, I... Bam, moose back <laughs> and lock the door. I, I see the Minnesota visor. You called me from Minnesota? Yes. yes. And the, actually, this is a fake hair. I just thought I'd wear it for the nuts of it. I, <laughs> I've had a hat on all day. I had, Mike, I got to tell you, I had a um, <clears throat> surgery Monday on this elbow. I had what they call a, it's um, a blocked nerve in it. And it's called in the cub- cubital tunnel of where which houses the ulna nerve that runs from the shoulder down into the hand and what was happened um last february I had a <clears throat> reverse right arthroplasty i had this shoulder replaced oh wow and um so now i got both shoulders both knees and a hip replaced so what happened was i hit my hand started to swell up and i i lost strength in this right hand so <laughs> And they go through this process and they stick needles up and down your arm and they run electrical impedance on it. And then they found out that I had this nerve that was trapped in my elbow. So the other day, uh, Monday, I went in there at 730 in the morning and I had to wait a couple hours, but the surgery was 15 minutes long, no pain at all, came home, um, took one Advil and um my hand <laughs> it's like a miracle and i called him you know and i told him i said geez i said I believe it here you know for eight months my my hand it looked like a catcher's mat um you know glove and and it was just i had no strength in it but it was the miracles of uh medicine now you're feeling like a million bucks right well not that good <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm walking a little better and I'm I can't throw a curveball yet, but I can I can pick up a a log in my right hand, I guess. Minnesota, home of the five and one Vikings. I know you tried out for the Redskins. We'll talk about that later on. You a big football fan? I am. I played at the University of Minnesota and uh I'm a little uh, 
disappointed in the Gophers right now because they started off, you know, playing four cream puffs and then <laughs> they've lost their last two games to get <laughs> Purdue and Illinois. And I just, uh, you know, it's been 60 years since Minnesota's been to the Rose Bowl. <laughs> and I, I have a coach who's 81 who he's the last remaining coach out of the coaching staff that that I was at the university back in the late 60s with Murray Warmath, who was the head coach. And his name is Mike Reed, and he was a backfield coach. And we've talked back and forth over the years about the different talent. And I told him, I said, ah, this year's they're, they're going to go. They're going to, they might not beat Ohio State, but they'll come in second and they'll wind up going to the Rose Bowl. <laughs> And, and he told me, he says, ah, Brunzi, he says, ah, don't, you know, don't get too optimistic. And sure enough, you know, they might lose two more games. <laughs> and then the Vikings, I don't know. I, uh, I, um, I'm a little concerned about the Vikings defense, you know, and they, uh, you know, hmm, we'll see. How about this favorite Viking of all time? Oh, geez. Mm, gosh. Oh, you know, it's hard to say. I, I would say probably Fran Tarkenton because he was so fun to watch. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, he was he, he he was the first of what Patrick Mahomes is. Yeah. Patrick Mahomes has made it a little, <laughs> a little more daring, you know, and exciting. I tell you, that game between Buffalo and Kansas City, I can't I, – there's no, there's no game that can, you know no. – Compared to that, that was just incredible, incredible, you know, sport. And, and and to watch those guys go back and forth and you think, holy Jesus, how the rest. I was talking to my son who enjoys the football, too. And I said, it's too bad that two NFC teams couldn't play in the Super Bowl or two AFC. Yes, because that should be the Super Bowl. Yes, exactly. But who knows? I was in Minnesota three years ago or four years ago to watch the Yankees and Twins. And I had okay. to go to Matt's bar for Juicy Lucy's. Is that the main food in Minnesota or is it more of a tourist thing? Because I love them. Yeah. You know what? I've had one of them. And oh. I have been to Matt's, but they have them all over, you know. But that that's a signature for that bar. And, uh, you know, uh, between that barbecue and chicken wings, you know, uh, the Twin Cities. I mean, they have a place in St. Paul. Uh, called Hickory Hut, and they got the best damn chicken wings. So honestly, gosh, you know, it's a little rough part of town, you know, but uh, you got to check your gun when you go in. But uh, they have the best. They have the best I got in chicken wings. Speaking of food, now every wrestler now, and I'm not a big wrestling fan now, every wrestler is a Greek god. They're chiseled. They look like they come out of, like, honestly, a magazine, Men's Health. Back when you wrestled, obviously there was the, you know, Paul Orndorff and these guys who were just shredded. Then there were all other wrestlers, Hillbilly Jim, Kamala, who, you know, they were chubby. They were this life on the road. No one really cared what they ate. Was diet not important? It was just eating and drinking and partying? Well, in the 80s, when I was there, I was there uh, in 85 to actually off and on, off and on. Vince fired me three times. I think (laughs) 94 was my last run in there. But uh, there was a an awful heavy use of steroids, you know, and I remember, and there was, there was a lot of street drugs involved too. And I remember, um, (laughs) this was funny. Um, They used to have drug tests. And and I remember one time we wrestled down in Key West 
and we made our way up to uh, Tampa and then flew out. And then that next day, I can't remember, I might've been in Pittsburgh or something. We had a drug test right away because there, there was a huge <laughs> amount of cocaine in, in, in Key, Key Largo. And Key, so, but, uh, you know, it, it was prevalent and a lot of guys, uh, you know, used to party at night, but they get up in the morning and, you know, for three and a half years, the killer bees um, were booked 32 or 27 days a month. Wow. For uh, two and a half years, three and a half years. And it was, you know, we just sort of, you had to make the best of it. And, and, uh, you know, guys that, you know, have a six pack or whatever it was, a couple of joints or something at night. And then, you know, in the morning you got up and you went to the airport and you, you got on the plane and you got your rent a car and you went to the motel and you took a nap and you went to the gym, came back, ate, go to the matches, start all over again. Unbelievable. Before it we was. Talk, before we talk wrestling, I need to know, Minnesota guy, a golden yes. gopher, how do you become friends and get involved with Bruce Springsteen from Jersey? I need to know this. Because you and Bruce have a relationship or a friendship? Well, it's it's more one-sided. <laughs> He, he he sees he likes my wife a lot more than me. He gets okay. he gives her a big hug and a kiss, and I walk up to him and go and and I says Bruce, I says I'm a little jealous of my wife, you know. And he <laughs> so I gave him a hug the last time, but yeah, I, I um it's funny because I I was coming home, I was wrestling in the AWA, I was coming home one night late, and it was like seventy, it was 1974. And um, we just come in from, I can't remember, Omaha or something. So I'm listening to, it was about a 25-minute drive from this private airport to my house in the north side of Minneapolis, a place called Broken Park. So I'm listening to the song, and I thought, holy Christ, never heard the song. And, and it was uh, uh, Jungle Land by Bruce. So I heard it, and it was real operatic and everything. And the guy, they never said the guy's the, the artist's name, and I I thought, geez, this, you know, it was a six, seven minute song, you know. So eventually I heard it again and it wound up. And then that year, Bruce was playing at a real nice theater. It's called the Tyrone Guthrie Theater. Okay. And it's a small place. It, it seats maybe 2,500 people, you know, if that. And they had a, um, a softball uh, tournament and it was a fundraiser and he was supposed to be there. So I go, the wrestlers were there. There was about three or four of us. So I'm waiting for Springsteen and his, his group to come and, you know, and then they said that they had a late sound check, so they weren't going to make it. So I missed them that night. Okay. And, um, I heard it was a great show. And then, uh, I, the first time I saw Bruce was in 1978, you know, he had that, legal conflict with his manager from 75 to 78. So in 78, uh, I saw him, I won't got to, I've seen him in, in the last 45 years, about 70 times. Wow. And, and we've been all over and, um, he's, uh, he's just something, you know, I, I, I'm a little disappointed in his, uh, his prices, the tickets, is, it's just horrible. Horrendous, and, horrendous. Or, I mean, it, it killed me, and I thought, gosh. So I, I was lucky enough, I have connections, and I got some tickets. But at the same time, those general admission tickets where the kids stand right out in front, mm -hmm. 
they're $2,500. Yeah, so. unbelievable. It prices out anyone who's anyone. It really prices out everybody. It does. Yeah, it does. And he's going to make, I figured it out uh, at a minimum through Europe and here without doing any coming back, $300 million. <laughs> Unbelievable. Have you, have you heard his new songs from the, um, oh, he, yeah, Night Shift and then uh, Do I Love You? I mean, it's all, it's all uh, not blues, but soul. Yes, yeah, completely different from his mainstream yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. I, he did that Night Shift so good. I thought, holy God. So every Friday I send out a, a Bruce video to I don't know, 40 of my friends. And I got, I got a Senator and I got somebody else <laughs> enjoy it, you know, and, and they really thought that uh, night shift was pretty good, but you know, I, he's, he's a special uh, talent and entertainer. And, and I just sort of, boom, I, I uh, sort of uh, realized where he was coming from and, and, you know, uh, he's been very good to me and my, uh, family. I mean, he took pictures with my kids. And wow, I, I'm going to try. I'm bringing my 17 year old grandson to the show because my wife doesn't want to go. <laughs> because it, it's 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 a nerve wracking deal, you know. Because there's two. I used to have a friend, a Terry McGovern, who was with Bruce for 30 years, and he loved wrestling, and he loved me, and he loved Mary. And cripe, we'd we no matter they picked us up at a cart <laughs> at. Uh, it, it was at Milwaukee. They picked us up at the back. And, and actually, we, Mary and I stood on stage behind the guitar guy, Tech, who was uh, doing wow. for Bruce. And there was 65,000 people there. So after the show, we wound up, <laughs> you know, seeing him. And, you know, sometimes what he'll do is he won't even take a shower. He just get, goes, boom, the whole band takes off. And then they, they have a 737 that they charter. And boom, they just go right from the show. They have a bus or something, boom, take them and away they go. And everybody else picks up their stuff and packs oh, wow. for the next, you know, next show. But so, um, yeah, it's been exciting. And, and, um, I've got, Oh gosh, so much memorabilia, you know, yeah, it's fun. And I, I'm looking forward to it. And he's just, you know, he's the best. Speaking of memorabilia, we'll transition now. What's cooler being in a wrestling video game, a comic book, because I know you guys got that, or a wrestling figure. Oh, gosh. I, I sort of think the figure, the action figure. Um, matter of fact, I just uh, emailed the company that uh, Brian Blair and I are involved with now. It's called Cella, and they're uh, Cella toys out of Europe. And, and I signed a contract. We both signed a contract with them three and a half months ago, and we haven't got our damn – we haven't got our money or <laughs> – Funny action figures we were supposed to get. And I said, Hey, what's going on here? So, but I, you know, it's sort of fun to have those. And I, I, I have a set, I saved some for my grandkids and, and I've got some memorabilia, you know, I've got that um, uh, jacket, that um, killer bee jacket that of I, course. I call our Liberace jacket. <laughs> when Liberace gave us, you know, it's all stuff, you know, sequins on it. And, you know, <laughs> matter of fact, the Halloween, if, when I'm home, I put my mask, I wear that jacket, and I open, and the kids, they, they say trick-or-treat, and I open the door, and they look, <laughs> at me, boom, some of them run away. <laughs> uh, back to football. You walked on as a Golden Gopher. You played all four yes. years in Minnesota? 
Yes, three years. Freshman couldn't play. Okay. I played my sophomore, junior, and senior year. I caught 11 passes for 99 yards. And I kicked off in about six or seven games. I started five games, uh, made a couple mistakes, jumped offside a couple times. So uh, it was, you know, nobody thought I was ever going to play at Minnesota. And I did. So it was, you know, it was it was great for me and uh, played one year a semi-pro in Wisconsin for Manitowoc Chiefs. And then I had uh, from there, I had an invitation to go try out at Georgetown University with the Redskins. And, and that was in 1972. And that was a pet year because that's the year they won the Super Bowl. And George Allen, I remember he talked to all of us and he said, well, he said, I just want to say this. He said, our team is pretty set, pretty well set. And he said, uh, probably the majority of you guys won't be, you know, part of the team, but I appreciate the fact, you know, you coming out and everything. And one guy was invited back out of the guys and he, he wound up being all pro. His name was Herb Mulkey. He was a punt returner and he could run like the devil I, we had to run a 40-yard dash and um <laughs> it had rained and, and we we're at this uh you know field it was just it was like running on you know mud and i thought holy god and i'm listening to the i they had me a tight end and they had like five tight ends or and i listened to these guys you know five one five two and i thought holy christ it was horrible and so I ran a four nine, which was the fastest of the tight ends. Wow. And this Herb Mulkey, who who he ran a four six, and and naturally, I mean, you know, that, you know, I, I I remember the next year he he did really well as a punt returner and kickoff. But I, I only think he played a couple of years, and that was it. And did he get a ring with him that year? Ah, uh, I think he did. Nineteen seventy two. Yeah. So you yeah. walk on at Minnesota. Yes. You, you, you try out, you play the three years. Where the transit, because you weren't an amateur wrestler at Minnesota, were you? No. So no. how did transition to wrestling come? Because usually, you know, you, you'll be grappling. To go from football to wrestling, that's kind of different. It was. Uh, my freshman year, I walked on at the U, and a friend of mine, Greg Gagne, walked on as a quarterback. So we actually teamed up during our freshman year, you know, moving the ball well against the varsity. And we became good friends. So his dad was Vern Gagne, who was the WA world champion. And I became, you know, uh, a figure that appeared at his house a couple different times. And, you know, Greg and I did this and we double dated and we did that. And then, you know, became good friends. And then um, our sophomore year, he realized he wasn't going to play quarterback at Minnesota. So he transferred to Wyoming. And so I stayed at Minnesota. He went to Wyoming. And then afterwards, um, when he, 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 he was trying to get a, a trial with the Atlanta Falcons. And I don't know what happened, but uh, to make a long story short, uh, after 1972 Olympics, Kenny Patera competed mm-hmm. in the weightlifting and Greg called me back, called me up and said, hey, my dad's going to have a camp. Would you like to come? And I said, geez, I said, the only wrestling I did was intramurals. And he said, well, that's okay. We're going to start out. And then they they had Billy Robinson, who was the British uh, heavyweight champ. Oh, God. He was a sadistic son of a gun. And so we had Kazro Vaziri, who was the Iron Sheik. We had Ray Blair, the nature boy. We had Ken Patera. 
we had a football player named Bob Bruggers, who was a great athlete. And he wound up in a plane crash and broke his back and never wrestled again. Wow. And uh, Greg and myself, and, you know, we went through this camp. It was, oh, gosh, six days a week and six hours a day. It was tough as hell. And then wound up, you know, uh, I remember the first match I had uh, was December 27th. Uh, 1972 and I wrestled a kid named Dennis Stamp who was an amateur wrestler in a small school in Minnesota and I remember oh god it was just you know I yeah I didn't know what I was doing and you know you know I would I came into the locker room and I was pissed off and Dusty Rhodes was there and he said give me with the matter he sort of fought with the lift and I, I said, geez I said I said Dusty I said god dang I said that was a horrible match and he says he said, Jimmy, I just want to let you know you're going to have a lot of stinkers in your in your career, so get used to it. And that was it. That's yeah. some pep talk. Yeah, it was. So, so, Jim, let me ask you. So, so you're doing this six days a week, six, seven hours a day. When did yeah. you be like, okay, this is my profession? Like, Because after you know a couple of weeks, like, okay, I'm kind of investing. Now, you're investing. That's not normal hours. Those are like sweatshop hours. So you they knew were. back then, like, I'm going to be a professional wrestler? Well, you know, it was sort of like, you know, you knew what was going on a little bit, but at the same time, you know, you thought, well, what else am I going to do? You know, I can go back. I got 25 more credits and I'll be a recreation leader at some, you know, community or something like that. So I thought, well, so I just went through and they, they actually had me wrestle in um, Minnesota for a little bit, but the AWA was so stacked with talent, they sent me down to Kansas City, which was called the Central States area. Okay. I, I uh, That was run by Pat O'Connor and Bob Geigel, and I wrestled every single day, Mike, and twice a night. I mean, it was twice a night. You have opener, and then you come back as a tag team. And they teamed me up with Mike George, this amateur wrestler from St. Joe, Missouri, and we won these uh, central states tag team championship. And uh, it was funny because in the wrestling magazine, we were rated higher than the AWH champions. <laughs> <laughs> so, so to make a long story short, you know, I was in Kansas city, but I, I the pay was horrible. I, uh, you know, I'd wrestled twice a, a day and, Oof. you know, it was 14 times a week. And I remember getting, you know, uh, like for one night's pay, I got a, a little envelope. This guy, his name was Moody. He, he was the referee and he also worked in the office. So he'd throw us these little envelopes. I opened it up for one night. It was $27 and 50 cents. What? And did you just love it? They're like, I don't care about the money. No, I said, no, I can't. <laughs> so I, I called Vern. I said, Vern, I said, I can't make it on this. You know, I, I had, um, uh, one bedroom efficiency that I paid $145 for Mike and I'd cook chicken and I'd cook eggs and I, you know, I'd have a six pack of beer and then I'd have, uh, you know, uh, hot dogs and chicken and that was it, you know, and I did that for 11 months and I thought, Holy smokes, you know, and that was, then they brought me back uh, and then they teamed Greg and I up and that was for, about four years. And then uh, I sort of got tired of being a tag team. So, you know, I, I moved 
to the Mid-Atlantic and I was down in Charlotte for 18 months. And it was a great territory. We wrestled every night, every single day. They had Rick Steamboat, they had Jimmy Snuka, they had Rick Flair, they had Blackjack Mulligan. Um, uh, they they had some great talent down there and, and you just, you know, you went with it. And it, it, and it was, one thing I liked about Charlotte was, you know, on, on New Year's Eve, it was 61 degrees instead of being 60 <laughs> with the windshield. So, it, it, you know, it was great. And then, and then uh, it was time to leave. I remember Jim Barnett, who was the booker in Atlanta. I, I got fired in, in uh, North Carolina because I had a little disagreement with George Scott, who was the booker. Uh, probably the worst booker in professional wrestling history. <laughs> I'll tell you the reason why. So Cosro Vaziri, the Iron Schnook, that's what I call him, the Iron Schnook. Uh, he and I did a program where, you know, he had that loaded boot and he hit that boot in the ring and then boom, he beat me for the Mid-Atlantic belt uh, on TV. And so about a week later, I wrestled him again on TV wound up putting a sleeper hold on him. He went out and I took off his boot. So I grabbed the boot and I go do the interview. And I said, I'm going to get my belt back. So we're wrestling in Roanoke, Virginia, the next weekend. And I've got his gimmick boot with the curled toe and everything. And the, you know, the loaded, whatever it was in the toe. So uh, I come into uh, <laughs> Roanoke, Virginia, and it's a three o'clock Sunday afternoon. So I, uh, George Scott's uh, brother, Sandy, was the uh, agent there. And I said, uh, he said to me, he said, uh, Jimmy, did you get the finish from George? And I said, no. I said, what's finished? And he said, well, George wants you to do a Broadway, which is an hour-long draw. And I said, Sandy, I said, you might as well bury me at, in, in the middle of the ring because Jumping Jim Pronzilla be dead because <laughs> if I can't beat him with his loaded boot, when can I beat him? Yeah, you can never beat him then. That's it. No, I mean, it just, it, it was so anti contrary to, uh, you know, wrestling norms, really. You know, he could have run off and got disqualified or this or that, but to do an hour draw, holy God. And it was like pulling teeth without Novocaine. Castro <laughs> was so. You know, we got to do this, Jimmy. We got to do this. We got to do that. So to make long story short, about three weeks later, I'm wrestling him again. We're supposed to do an hour draw, and I'm still chasing my belt again. And we're out. He takes a bump outside, and he holds his back. And I, I went out there, and I grabbed him, and he said, oh, I hurt my back. So wound up getting counted out instead of, you know, doing the Broadway. So about 9 o'clock in the morning, I got a call <clears throat> from the – girl at the office and said, Jim, can you come in? Uh, George Scott would like to talk to you. And I said, okay. So I get up, have breakfast. I go in, talk to George Scott. And he says, geez, Jimmy, you know, I wanted you to do an hour draw. And I said, George, I realized that. I said, but Kaz will hurt his back. And and so we did a count out. And he says, Kaz said he didn't hurt his back. Why did he throw you under the bus? Because he didn't want to admit that he did it. So, oh. so, so George says, well, you know, I'm going to have to let you go. And I says, fine. I said, I'm ready to leave here anyhow. So from there, this was 1981. 
I, I wrestled about three weeks in Atlanta and then I went to Japan uh, for three weeks and I was Nick Bockwinkle, who was the world champion in the AWA and, and an enemy of mine. He and I became partners over there and, and you know, represented the AWA. I had a hell of a time. We had some great matches. Then I came back and then, you know, we did really good business. I had, I, I remember Jim Barnett telling me, he said, in Atlanta, he said, Jim's, and this is the way, I, I don't know if you ever heard Jim Barnett, but yeah. the way he saw, he said, Jim's, he says, and what, what do you want to do with your wrestling career? And I says, well, I said, I'd love to be champion. I said, but I'm going to go home. And he says, well, and he says, if you go home to Daddy Vern, he says, it's going to be the worst mistake you ever made in your life. Well, when I went back that whole year, 1981, I had my biggest year, I made $85,000. Greg and I got the tag team belts and everything was cool. So I wanted to tell Jim, <laughs> thanks for the warning. Now, it seems that you're having a good time. I know you didn't like the booker, but see, you go in Japan, you win the titles. Where the Because tra- now, listen, there's guys, Ricky Steamboat, Blackjack, yes. where the transition comes. I heard a lot of the um, guys on the circuit didn't like Vince McMahon. So why the transition to WWE, WWF? Well, the transition was when Hulk Hogan, uh, here's what happened. And, I, and, you know, this is a foregone conclusion. When Vince McMahon's dad died and Vince took over, he wanted the whole thing. So what he did, he sucked out the, the top talent from, from all the different 26 territories. Mike, there's 26 territories you could wrestle in the United States. And he sucked out, you know, he, he took Hulk Hogan from the AWA and Hulk was huge. And then he, he took Bobby Heenan. He took uh, Gene Okerlund, the announcer. He took Jesse Ventura, I mean, he, Rick Martell, and he did this to every place, you know. So if you wanted to wrestle, and at that time I had opened up my own gym in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, called Jumping Jim Brunzel's Gym. And it was 5,000 square feet. I had the best uh, steam bath in the Twin Cities. It was 190 degrees. And and it was a good gym, and, and, and things were going good. And um, all of a sudden, you know, the because all the talent was gone, it was hard to draw any money. So I went to Vern and I said, Vern, I said, Greg and I have been together for 10 years. And I said, right now, because of this New York deal, I said, the, the business is horrible here. And I said, I need to make X amount of dollars. And I said, I want you to give me a guarantee, you know, a contract, personal guaranteed contract. And he says, how much do you want? And I said, 95 grand. And he says, you're not worth it. Go to New York. So, and here, Greg and, wow. I, Greg and I had been partners for 10 years and had drawn a lot of money and done real well. So I said, okay. So I went to New York and I, I, uh, <laughs> I didn't get along from, uh, with Vince McMahon right away, but, you know, I, I managed to, you know, uh, hook up with Brian Blair and um, it was a real, uh, you know, it was it was hard there because you, you wrestled so so often and people don't realize that we flew every day. <laughs> I mean, we fly, you know, we we fly from New York to uh, Washington, you know, to Seattle. And then we get in the car and drive down and wind up down in uh, San Diego and then do a double shot in San Diego and Phoenix on the same Sunday. You know, I mean, it was just crazy. 
Is it true that Hogan was like your hype man? Is it true that Hulk like kind of uh, gave you street cred, said this guy's awesome? Is it, did he have any influence in you coming there? Oh, yeah, because he and I were good friends. Um, you know, I liked him. I thought he was incredible talent. I mean, people don't realize this, but uh, and I just see where Antonio Inuki, who was the champion in Japan mm-hmm. uh, for uh, New Japan Wrestling, um, and he's the one who fought uh, Cassius Clay. But um, uh, Anuki used to have matches with Hulk Hogan. It was incredible. I mean, Hulk could get down on the mat and reverse and do all sorts of stuff. So he, you know, he was he was the golden goose. So without him, Vince McMahon would have had nothing. You know, but Hulk was just incredible, and he, you know, he he was the WWE. So all those guys we had sixty guys, Mike that that Vince had pulled from every territory he could. So they had three towns running a night and 20 guys in each town. So they were making millions, I mean, millions. Wow. Millions of and, and Hulk Hogan, just on royalties, was making 50000 a week in royalties. Oh, my God. I know it was just... Incredible. Yeah. So now when you get to, cause you mentioned, like I said, Steamboat, all these other guys, you knew Ric Flair, you didn't have a relationship with Brian Blair. How'd that relationship, it's a three part question. How'd you guys even meet each other? And now do you guys go there and Bruce Pritchard always makes a joke, like all oh, the box of gimmicks. Were you guys there and be like, sell me. We want to be the killer bees. <laughs> Did you guys go there with a gimmick or were like, Oh crap, we're partners. What are we going to do? Well, both of us wanted to be single wrestlers. Okay. And it just so happened that we were up in Toronto and, you know, they were trying to f- figure out what they were going to do with us. And I think Billy Red Alliance, who was a, a fellow out of Toronto for a long time, uh, and he was a commentator there, said, you know, you guys should be a tag team. And he says, you know, Brunzel and Blair. And then, and then Brian says, well, you know, in the Miami Dolphins, they had the Killer B defense they had Bonacani. They had about four or five guys that were, the last name started in B. So they called us the Killer Bees. And it just so happened that, um, what's his name? Uh, Lanny Poffel had these black and yellow striped pants. Brand new. He just got them. And so <laughs> Brian and I put them on and away we get, went. We became the Killer Bees. And then somewhere down the line, we decided to wear the masks. And the, it was a a great gimmick because it was the first time that a babyface team wore a heel gimmick t- to beat the heels, you know, they'd switch and, and it was great, but you know, Vince, you know, we, we had thought that we were going to get the um, tag team belts a couple different times, but it never happened. So yeah. You know, I, I want to ask you about things. that. Cause I want to ask you about that because WrestleMania three, you were the, you were the match before uh, Hulk and Andre. Yes. You fight the Sheik and Nikolai Volkov. Yeah. That's the highest of high, the Pontiac Silverdome. Yeah. Then you're not in WrestleMania four yet. You're in Survivor Series. You're not on this main event. How do you guys deal with the ups and downs of that? Because that must be frustrating. Like, wow, in front of a gazillion people, WrestleMania three, the next match is Hogan versus Andre. Then you kind of disappear. How do you guys deal with that? Like, it must be like kind of like a like such a tease, isn't it? Well, it was. and, And it was disappointing because, you know, at the same time, you're sacrificing your family life. You know, for, you know, to make decent money, which we did make. But, you know, like I said, you know, we wrestled 27 days a month for three and a half years, you know, averaged. And we went 52 days, Mike, one time without a day off. 
52. God. And, and, and some guys went longer. At Cosgrove, uh, the Iron Sheik went 90 days. And it was just, you know, and, and guys were breaking down and, you know, there was a lot of problems with drugs and there was a lot of marital problems. And there was alcohol and, you know, guys were getting fights and, you know, it was just not a healthy, you know, situation. But somehow, you know, God willed us to and, and thank God for my wife and what a great job she did with our kids. And the rest of us, you know, made it through there. And it was a it was a hell of a slog, really. Mentally, I have a lot of athletes on. I ask them this, if they face any adversity. Mentally, I know because I had Brian on. You guys were told, you guys are going to be the champs. You're going to get this push. Then you don't get it. Mentally, how do you deal with that where it's like, oh, we're going to be the champs, the Bulldogs, Demolition, all these great tag teams. And you guys are up there. You guys are the killer bees. LJN, rubber figures, the mask gimmick, like you said, which was revolutionary. And then all of a sudden you're not getting, how do you guys keep dealing with that though? Well, there's two things you can do. You can, you know, just bite your lip and keep going or you can walk away. And there was no sense, you know, I mean, there was no other place to go. I mean, WCW was coming on and who knows, but you know, I was, you know, I was approaching, what the hell was I approaching? I was approaching 40 then I think. And I thought, heck, you know, I, you know, this is going to be the last outpost I do. And it, it just so happened that when um, Brian saw the handwriting on the wall and they let a whole mess of guys go, so Brian left. And then I stayed there because they used me. They sort of abused me. Vince, you know, uh, abused me on TV a little bit. But at the same time, uh, I still made some good money, you know, which I needed. Mm-hmm. And, and then, uh, you know, boom, finally I, I, I was done. And, you know, Brian and I did independence for a couple of years, and, you know, independent circle. Now it's different because you can go on YouTube, you can watch stuff. And it's back then it must be really difficult because it was, you know, he had a monopoly of everything. So was exactly. it and it, was it difficult going to do the independent circle? People knew who you are, but all of a sudden you're not there in front of 90,000 people and stuff. Right. So it must've been different because now you can go on YouTube, you can post a link like, Hey, watch my, and people are going to watch it. Back then, sure. how do you even get the word out? Well, I, I think what happened was the indie indie people who we worked for, you know, if they had some talent that had worked recently with the WWE, it was good for them. So to draw, yeah. so they made their money and they give us our guarantees. So we were happy about that. So you know that that worked very very well. Except over a period of time, pretty soon. Um, you know, you only could wrestle in one area, you know, once in a while. You couldn't go back and forth, back and forth, because you'd, you'd lose the draw, you know, mm-hmm. lose that, you know, killer be this or whatever. So um, I think, in, and then Brian got involved heavily with the Gold's Gyms that he, you know, he owned three gyms and did very well with. And um, so I think, you know, uh, I was very fortunate because – when I, I wrestled uh, independence until on my 50th birthday, I, that was my last match. And I wrestled Jim Neidhart. Oh, wow. Yeah. In uh, Albert Lee, Minnesota. And Ken Patera had uh, booked this. He used to run the, these in, indie shows. And I remember Jim was really under the weather that match. And I, I he almost uh, tore my head off. So I, after the match, I said, that's it. I'm, I'm done. So that was my 50th birthday, 1999. 
And it just so happened, I wound up getting a job selling uh, maintenance supplies uh, that I, I worked for 22 years. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So it worked out good. Um, you know, uh, I went from wrestling to selling toilet paper and I had a hell of a <laughs> on two ply Mike. So <laughs> <laughs> true or false. Were you on a plane that got hit by lightning? Uh, yes. We were coming out of Puerto Rico and this was with Hulk Hogan. This was, it was just, um, it was, we wrestled in a monsoon on in uh, Puerto Rico and San Juan. And it was at um, what's his name stadium. The, the baseball player used to be uh, Roberto Clemente. Clemente. And I remember, and there's footage of this someplace. Brian and I wrestled the tag team match. And I think it was Barry uh, Orton and somebody else, but it rained so hard. There was two inches of water on the mat and it was splashing around and and we we went on after the main event hulk because they wanted to get but then when we took off out of there the son of a gun got hit by i mean you know the, the lightning and then oh jeez but it you know sur- we survived another random question were you andre the giant's driver is that true i i was his driver in minneapolis okay and, and the reason being was we were in a town and this was see Andre used to come every fall, late fall of the year and start the season really for the big time, you know, after summer and, and they would have these battle Royals. So, and then the winner of the battle Royal would wrestle the heavyweight champion who was Nick Bockwinkle at the time. So I remember we were in Peoria, uh, Illinois and, uh, Wally Carbo, who was the partner of Vern Gagne, called me and he says, I want you to rent a Cadillac and I want you to pick up Andre after the match, take him, and I want you to drive him up to Moline, Illinois. And that's where he's going to have our next match and then he's going to fly to New York. And I said, okay. So, I, I you know, Andre and I were good friends. So I get this big, you know, four-door Cadillac and we're sitting there and he he wanted to get some beer. So, he got a 12-pack of beer, uh, and it's 99 miles up there to from Peoria to Moline. So, And I get uh, two or three cans of pop because I'm driving. So I'm driving down the road, and I'm going, you know, 70, and I think it was 60. And all of a sudden, this cop comes the opposite way, and he turns his lights on. He comes across the meeting, and he stops me. So I'm sitting there, and Andre's sitting there with a bag of beer in between his legs, and the cop says, uh, you know why I stopped you? And I said, well, I was probably speeding. And he said, yeah, you were. You were going 10 miles over. He said, why? And I said, well, I said this. I said, my partner here has got to uh, catch a flight in Moline to go to New York. And he says, oh, yeah. And he says, yeah. And, and uh, he looks, he's got his flashlight. And he said to Andre, he says, what's that between your legs? And Andre said, beer. And he said, what? And Andre looked at him and he said, beer. So the cop says, get out of the car. So Andre gets out of the car and goes back. He goes, oh, Jesus. And then he, he looks, you know, at the, the bag of beer. And if we'd only gone 10 miles and Andre had drank seven bottles of beer already. And he just drank them, you know, like, a, you know, like, <laughs> and, and the cop said to me, he says, have you drank any of that beer? I said, no, sir. I got my Pepsi. 
And he said to Andre, he said, did you drink the beer? He said, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, so he says, I tell you what I'm going to do. He says, I want you to open up the trunk. We're going to put the rest of the beer in there. And he says, I'm going to give you a speeding ticket. I said, okay. So he gives me the speeding ticket. And I thought, oh, geez. So it was like 105 bucks or something. I had to mail it in. and then... So we're driving north. And I'm going, you know, 60 miles an hour. And that's what the, so we go about. 20 or 30 miles and all of a sudden Andre says pull over and I says what for and he said I want the rest of the beer <laughs> <laughs> so we, we you know we pulled over I got the beer and we made it to Moline and but yeah he I that's one time I drove him yeah oh he, that's great yeah. I'm a I'm, I'm actually embarrassed about this I'm a huge reader I didn't know you wrote a book until around 20 minutes before we started Matt Le- there it is yes and Tell me about the book because I just saw it. I'm like, holy crap, I had no idea. I would have loved to have read, uh, read the book before I uh, podcast with you. Tell me about the book and what made you want to write it. Well, here's here's the thing. You know, there's so many interesting stories of, that happen to you. People don't believe it. And we, we had, you know, our friends that we had been, you know, friends with, you know, for our whole, you know, marriage, you know. And uh, we'd go out and they, I'd tell them these stories and they said, you know, you should write a book. So, what I did was my wife bought me, Mary bought me this little dictaphone. And then I would think of these stories and they're all true. And I'd write them down. And then at one time I had like 50, 55 stories. And, you know, I had my own pictures, my own private library of wrestling photos. So I decided I'm going to make, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to call it Madlands. You know, from Badlands of Bruce is bad. Of course, there has to be a Bruce and, connection. Yeah. And then so uh, I wrote this book and I, the place that I did it was a place called Blurb, uh, B-L-U-R-B. And they would do this. Uh, they would put everything together. And this picture, that little picture of me right there. Yeah. I'm, I'm six years old and I'm sitting on. Uh, the island of Kwajalein in the South in the Marshall Islands. Mm-hmm. My dad was a, a pilot in the Navy. He was air sea rescue. So we got stationed out in Kwajalein, which was a mile and a half long and a half a mile wide. It was all coral. And, and it was inhabited by the Japanese during World War II. And there was still armaments all over the beaches and everything. But we were there for a year. And one thing great about it, they had no school, you know, so every every day was the same. It was 85 degrees every day. And then on uh, Saturdays, the they'd come, they'd have the Navy bus come and pick you up and they'd bring you to the base headquarters and then they'd show newsreels and they'd show cartoons. So that was our entertainment because you had no TV. Wow, so, that's wild. Yeah, so I was there and uh, Kripe was all over the place. So it was, you know, and then the book... Uh, um, actually I've done real well with the book and every time I do these doggone uh, podcasts, Mike, I always wind up selling 10 of them. <laughs> yeah. Cause I'll be honest. I love nothing's better than wrestling books. Cause everyone wants to hear a story and no one wants to hear the generic stories, you know? Yeah. So when people write a book, if you wrote a book and just told stories about WWE, we knew those stories. So to tell different stories is what sells. I'm excited to read that now. Yeah. Well, you'll have to send me your uh, address and I'll mail you a book. And then I'll also, I wrote a song 
uh, called Madlands. And it's a, a, a knockoff of Badlands from Bruce. And I had it recorded twice. And actually, Bruce gave me permission to do it. So, Oh, really? Yeah. So, you know, he didn't want any, you know, any part of it. And I, I actually, I've tried not to sell them, you know, to, I, I just didn't want to, I, I've, I've already had a couple in and outs with his lawyers um, from New York. So I, I don't want to piss him off anymore. You know, his lawyers, please. <laughs> so, but to make a long story short, I'll send you the uh, CD. It's actually pretty good. A, a friend of mine by the name of GB Layton, um, who was very, he was influenced by Bruce as a young teenager uh, sounds very much like him and you can look him up on. Uh, oh, that's sick. Of course. Yeah. You could look him up on YouTube right now. Uh, GB Layton band. And, and he's, he's very good. So and one other publication thing, how'd the comic book come about? Cause I know you guys have the killer bees comic book. Well, that was a, a friend of Brian Blair's who had an idea down in Florida to uh, do the comic books. And we just, you know, just sort of fell into that and they wrote up stories and, and basically it was sort of our autobiography of both of us and then how we got together. And, and, you know, it was, and the artwork was very good. And I, I just found some too, you know, uh, we're constantly um, going through the house and, and getting rid of this. And we've been in this house for 37 years. So there's a lot of stuff up in, uh, in the closet, in the attic and removing stuff and, so I find all these magazines and it's funny because Mary says, you're out of books. So I, I said, well, we'll get 30 more, you know? So, so we get 30 more. I just got uh, these new books last week. They delivered. And then I found the whole box of them. <laughs> <laughs> of course you did. Of course. So I got, so I got about 65 of them now. So. All right. You ready to finish up with a few quick kid questions? Sure. You and I are at a bar in New York city, hanging out. Who's the coolest person in your phone? That if you texted them, they would text you back. You want to impress the whole bar. I have Bruce's number, but I've never called it. Okay. I, I, I would say probably Hulk Hogan. And if you so if you randomly texted Hulk, he'd write back to you. I think so. Yeah. Great. That's a great, great answer. Yeah. How about this? The coolest piece of memorabilia that you own. I know you said the jacket, but besides that, what is the other coolest piece of memorabilia that you own there? Hmm. Jeez. I got to think now. Well, I, I, I have this river jacket that they gave me and it, and it's the, the real river jacket that Bruce from 1980, 81. And it, they had like uh, 24 of them made and it was for most of the road crew and it just says the river on the back and it says Bruce Springsteen, East Street Band, uh, 1980-81. That's, that's a good piece. Oh, man. Yes. And it's funny because when I was over in Australia, the promoter over there, you know, he knew I was a big Bruce fan. And he gave me this uh, blue jean vest. And in the back, this was Bruce went over there in uh, 85, I think, in the Born in the USA tour. And the back, instead of being the United States, was the shape of Australia. And it says born in the USA. So Bruce signed this thing for me. And I had it. You know, it was a jean jacket or jean vest. And I wound up giving it to a friend of Bruce's um, 
who uh, has had Parkinson's for a number of years. And um, he wound up uh, selling it and he got $2,700 for it for a fundraiser for his. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I thought, gosh, <laughs> I wish I would have kept it now. <laughs> How about this one? You always hear about toughest guy in the locker room. How about this? Who was the best guy in the locker room? Mm. Well, it depends upon where you were. I mean, there was, you know, uh, Rick Steamboat was a great guy, you know, uh, and is a great guy today. Um, Bobby Heenan. He was incredible. Oh, he he was by far the most talented wrestler of my era. He could do anything. anything. Really? Oh, yeah. Eighth grade education. He this timing. His, and he used to get that snot kicked out of him every night. And he, I mean, he was like this, you know. I remember, uh, <laughs> he, you know, and he used to drink like a son of a gun. He'd drink that vodka. And, and um, so he was, this is a quick story. So we're in Denver Friday night. He stayed up all night. And he was drunk. And, and, and then we had to do TV at in Minneapolis Saturday. So we got in there at 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock we're, doing TV at the WTCN 11. So uh, Bobby looks over and Bobby had, you know, Bobby Duncan and Jack Lanza and Nick Bockwinkle and, and a couple other guys that he spoke for. So he was looking at the, the production of the interviews, who was going to be wearing there. And he leaned over Vern Gagne and Wally Carbo's, you know, shoulder to see where he was. And all of a sudden Vern looked at him and, and he looked at him, he's smiling, he says, Heenan, and he, he says, he, he says, have you been drinking? And Bobby says, you can't smell vodka. And he walked away. <laughs> <laughs> but he was he was the greatest. Oh, God. And this, he might be the answer for the next one. How about this? The biggest prankster in the locker room. Oh. Well, this was Davy Boy Smith. Really? Oh, gosh. You know, the British Bulldogs, when Terry Taylor came into the territory, they and Terry Taylor, you know, had this fashion deal like, you know, Ric Flair, you know, wore a sport coat and he had real nice Sansabelt slacks and nice, you know, shoes and everything. Well, the Bulldogs were bad and 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 they'd go into his life, you know, and they, they you know, he had these $80 slacks. And then when he was in the match, they cut the cuffs off about that high, you know, so his... his his pants look like pedal pushers, you know, they came below his knees and, and, and they do it. And then he'd, you know, he'd say, fellas, not going to, and they deny doing it. So one time we're wrestling in Maryland and I got done early and I'm walking and I'm coming to the locker room and Davy boy has got my coat, which I had a hood on and he's got the hood and he's filling it full of whipped cream. And I says, I said, Davy, what are you doing? He said, nothing, Jimmy. <laughs> got down and you know and, here, and I had I had eight inches of foam you know <laughs> in my in my hood and and he was Davy boy was a good guy and I, I tell you the bees we we had some matches with the British Bulldogs in Montreal that was just 30 minute drawing oh gosh it was just incredible and it, and it was a shame both those guys died so young yeah. oh, God you know Davy boy oh but you know that's the story. You look at some of these guys. There was a, there was, 
six or eight of them, and they were all about that same age, you know, Kurt Henning mm-hmm. and Rick Rude and all those guys and, and just overdosing. And they just, you know, you couldn't talk to them. You know, you'd say, hey, you can't mix that shit. You can't mix this and this and this and expect to live. And they'd look at you and they'd laugh. It's so, it's so crazy because a guy like you, very lucky. Listen, your career has been incredible, iconic career. And then you had so many friends of yours who just passed so young. And yet you talk about the great times and the times that we never saw. The times when you started, just started with them or, uh, you know, a dark show in, you know, Nebraska. And then forget about the big stage and they passed away so young. So it's so sad what happened to so many wrestlers. It, it's tragic. It really is. It is. It is. As a matter of fact, I talked to Hillbilly Jim today. He's a dear friend of mine from Mudlick, Kentucky. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's a character. He doesn't have any, he doesn't have a cell phone. He doesn't have a computer. Come on. He, really? No, he, he watches TV and all he does is train. And, uh, you know, he had a quadruple bypass, I think it was 10 years ago. And his mom and dad both died early of cardiac problems. And, um, so I, I talked to him and, and um, you know, his main deal is, uh, <laughs> you know, working out, you know, and he's six, nine and it just that, and he's a hell of a guitar player. Boy, can he play the guitar? He's got about 12, 15 guitars and he can. Wow. He, oh, he's a great, if you ever get a chance to talk to him, ask him to play guitar. He can really play it. If you see right behind me, I'm the biggest Kentucky basketball fan. You see the Kentucky yeah, jersey behind me? Yeah. Yes. Man. Love Kentucky basketball. Yeah. Well, you know, he he's, he lives in uh, Bowling Green. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, he was a good basketball player, too. He had two or three big colleges after. Wow. And he went to three or four colleges. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he liked the schoolwork, though, you know. <laughs> Jim, I got to say, bro, this was a blast. Exceeded my expectations. And I'm glad we just didn't talk wrestling. I'm glad you tell me some Bruce stories and some football stories. After I read your book, we'll come back on and we'll do something else again. Perfect. Dude, this was a blast, bro. Thank you so much, Jim. I appreciate it. Thank you. God bless. Be safe, my friend. Yeah.